It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. I can't believe it. A major international news story, and I slept right through it. I don't know. I woke up today, and apparently there was a big, massive outage striking large sections of the web, and all these big news sites and other sites were knocked offline. But by the time I, you know, sat down at my computer, everything seemed fine. I mean, the graphics in the New York Times were off a little bit. So apparently this happened uh, before 7 Eastern today. New York Times, CNN, BBC, Amazon, Hulu, temporarily struck down or severely limited. Also uh, Reddit, Pinterest, Twitch, the UK government, The Guardian, Bloomberg News. I mean, this had an amazing impact. And you say, okay, so how could something like this happen? And it turns out it's one company, a, a San Francisco company, that does cloud computing services. Uh, it's called Fastly, which wasn't so fast. And said in a status update that the issue has been identified, a fix has been applied. So how could it be that you know you have like all these you know billions and billions of dollars at stake, all of these huge traffic sites, and one little outfit in California can bring a lot of it crashing down? It seems insane. I would like to know more about this. One thing I would not like to know more about uh, is the chatter online about, was Donald Trump wearing his pants backwards? That's right. When he spoke to uh, North Carolina convention over the weekend, you know, it didn't make all that much news with the speech, but people glommed onto the image. And I don't know, it did kind of look like you didn't see any sort of zipper or buttons there. On the other hand, who really cares? And uh, how does this affect your daily life? But uh, imagine this had happened when he was president. But of course, if he was president, there would have been a more of a support structure around him. And I'm not saying it did happen. I just looked at the pictures like everybody else. Um, you remember when the uh, pipeline shut down? Of course you do. The gas lines. Uh, this is the pipeline, colonial pipeline that uh, provided fuel for about 45% of the East Coast needs. Well, the company, Colonial, caved and paid, uh, paid about $4 million in ransom. Well, now the Justice Department is saying yesterday it got a lot of that money back, uh, more than $2 million, by tracing 75 bitcoins that Colonial Pipeline had used to pay the hackers. So this is interesting. On the one hand, you know, you can't give them cash or write them a check. So you do bitcoins, and I guess that would seem to be, you know, it's cryptocurrency that I don't even pretend to fully understand. Uh, but also there's a way of tracking it. Uh, federal investigators tracking the, these bitcoins as they move through 23 different electronic accounts belonging to Darkside, this hacking group that's apparently based in Russia, um, before landing in one that a federal judge allowed them to break into. So you can commit... Uh, thievery if a judge says it's okay, but of course it's not really thievery because you're just getting back uh, money that never should have been um, paid in the first place in this shakedown. Okay. A uh, little bit of a flap involving USA Today. Uh, you know, sometimes you see these newspapers and they have a wraparound. Uh, you know, it's a paid advertisement with a phony front page promoting something. And, I, you know, I've seen enough of these things over the year. I'm not terribly exercised about it. Well, USA Today coming under fire for having a fake front page, you know, once you took the wrapper off, you saw the real paper and the real front page um, that looked like, you know, crazy supermarket tabloid stuff because it had, obviously, Photoshop pictures, obviously, of hydrid babies, that is sort of half human, half animal. Now, why would anyone do that? Because there's a new Netflix series coming out called Sweet Tooth. 
based on a DC comic series that I confess I have not heard of until this very moment. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, so, you know, it's not like, you know, there was a, a headline that for at least a second you could say, well, gee, maybe this really happened and scared some people. It's so obviously bogus. It was so obviously, you know, a stunt that nobody could have been fooled. Nevertheless, you know, you go on to Twitter and people are saying, oh, man, well, how could the USA Today have done this? It, not so much saying that they were fooled by it. They were saying, good God, one person wrote, they sold the front page above the fold on a purely bogus shock advertisement. I never thought USA Today had standards, but holy S. Um, there's lots of newspapers that have done this. So, you know, in, this, in the uh, vast array of media malfeasance to worry about, this is a blip, folks. All right, let's go to story number one. The aftermath of the savaging of Joe Manchin. I have a column today on Fox about this. I uh, talked about it on the air yesterday. Uh, it's really quite incredible. And after the podcast yesterday, more and more uh, people from the left were piling on the West Virginia senator. Uh, you know, you don't like Joe Manchin, fine. You think he should roll over for the Biden agenda, fine. You think he should blow up the filibuster, okay. You think he should vote for the um, sweeping for the people voting rights act? Fine. You're entitled to your opinion. You're entitled to criticize him. He's entitled to do what he wants. He's a, he's a duly elected United States senator. But what really was striking about what happened this weekend is Manchin has been saying this stuff for months. In the case of the filibuster, whether Barack Obama was president, Donald Trump is president, or Joe Biden is president, Manchin hasn't moved. He thinks the filibuster is an important guardrail for the Senate. I don't necessarily agree, but that's been his position. Uh, and on, he's been saying for months that he had problems with this sweeping Democratic voting rights bill uh, that does a whole lot more than voting rights. D.C. statehood is a lot of stuff in there. So you've got these attacks, you know, accusing him of uh, uh, enabling Jim Crow. And then Jamel Hill... Now, you may remember her when she was a co-host on ESPN. Uh, she called President Trump a white supremacist. It was a big uproar about that. Nothing happened. But then she criticized uh, a football coach, and she got suspended for a couple of weeks, finally left. She's now a contributing writer at The Atlantic. And here's what she tweeted. This is so on brand for this country. Record numbers of black voters show up to save this democracy, only for white supremacy to be upheld by a cowardly, power-hungry white dude. Joe Manchin is a clown. Okay, I mean, this is so over the top in so many ways. You disagree with the guy, fine. He's not a coward. And I don't even think he particularly enjoys the the influence that his unique position gives him in a 50-50 Senate. By the way, it's not just him, it's Kristen Sinema. You know, if it wasn't for Manchin, it would be somebody else. There's always going to be. It's like John McCain being the final vote in the Republican Party who saved Obamacare, not because he loved Obamacare, but because he felt like Donald Trump uh, didn't have a plausible health care plan to replace it. Um, and so, you know, to call him, say, say he's upholding white supremacy because he won't go along with this bill that you happen to like, it's just, it's just kind of amazing. And um, Manchin, if anything... The easy thing to do for Manchin would just be, sure, like whatever Biden wants. Okay, well, let's, let's do all these things. I'll vote for everything. I'll just be a party-line Democrat. Now, if he did that, he probably would lose his seat in the red state of West Virginia, which Trump, where Trump won like 70% of the vote. He's not up until 2024. But I think in Manchin's case, you know, former governor there, he has a history of talking about bipartisanship. I don't think he's doing this just to sort of get himself on TV. Um, and so the interesting thing here is, first of all, 
Donald Trump, in an interview yesterday, I guess, with uh, Stuart Varney on Fox Business, praised Manchin for taking the stance he has taken on the filibuster. Except I have to point out that when Trump was president, and he, he spent basically four years telling Mitch McConnell to get rid of the filibuster. Why? Because when you hold the White House, when your party is in power, if you're the president of the United States, you hate the filibuster because otherwise you could just do whatever you want to do with 51 votes. Uh, and, and Biden could do that too with Kamala Harris breaking the tie. But when the other party is in control, you love the filibuster. So Trump didn't, was impressed or didn't make any effort to explain why he wanted to get rid of the filibuster, uh, you know, as recently as last year when he was in power and now think it's a great thing that at least one Democratic senator won't go along. So there's sort of this hangover now in the media, you know, all weekend, you know, Manchin was on a couple of Sunday shows. He wrote that op-ed piece in the Charleston Gazette Mail. And, and, you know, he's taken all the flack and he's a terrible guy and, you know, all the attacks from the left. But now there's sort of this hangover after the party, like, uh, what do we do now? Because if you look at it, you know, unless there's an infrastructure compromise and they're still talking, but they're still far apart, or Biden is able to use, use his one more get-out-of-jail-free card by doing budget reconciliation to get through uh, probably he would go for the bigger $2 trillion version of his instruction plan. Why knock it down to a trillion if the GOP can't produce the votes? Remember, you you know, you need 10 Republican votes to pass anything in a 50-50 Senate. But beyond that, all the other things that the Democrats want to do, whether it's immigration, whether it's health care, whether it's American Family Act with, you know, the free college, uh, excuse me, community college and the free preschool, all of those things, the very ambitious left-wing $6 trillion Joe Biden agenda, it's all kind of stopped, or most of it, uh, if they can't persuade Joe Manchin to come around, or they can just keep endlessly negotiating with Republicans will never, and never reach a deal. And by, by the time you know it, it's next year and it's election year, nothing can pass. This is what happened to Barack Obama in 2009 and, and 2010, Except, you know, they used the budget maneuver to get through. They used a lot of parliamentary maneuvers to finally get through uh, Obamacare. Uh, So National Review has a piece saying, you know, Manchin is pouring cold water on this For the People Act. And as I mentioned yesterday, he's not against um, voting rights. He supports the much narrower John Lewis Voter Advancement Act. But um, Manchin basically saying, here's the quote uh, from Manchin. I believe that partisan voting legislation will destroy the already weakening binds of our democracy. And for that reason, I will vote against the For the People Act. So National Review is saying, look, the media are kind of acting like this is the holy grail. Uh, the New York Times claims that Manchin has no substantive criticism of the For the People Act. Um, but he says that, look, Republicans have legitimate reasons to oppose the bill. And let's go back and work between the two parties and not just, you know, do things on a partisan basis. Um, Josh Barrow of Business Insider uh, has quoted this piece as saying, this bill has never been written in a way that is designed to seek even 50 votes in the Senate. The weird thing is how many people are not in on the joke. That, says National Review, will seem to include most of those paid to inform the public about such things. Yeah, there is a legitimate debate about this legislation, folks. You may think it is the greatest bill of all time, the worst bill of all time, but you can't just portray it as a Joe Manchin power grab or um, temper tantrum, because that's just not going to fly. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. All right, number two. 
serious subject here. Uh, we have now a report, an actual bipartisan report from two Senate committees where Republicans and Democrats, miracle of miracles, work together about the January 6th riot at the Capitol. Now, one of the reasons this was able to be a bipartisan report is it didn't really get into President Trump's role. Uh, it did say that he continued to assert the election was stolen from him and he promoted the Stop the Steal protest that, of course, turned violent. Uh, but it didn't try to assess his culpability in it. Probably if you had done that, you wouldn't come out with a report that both parties could sign on to. But it, it makes my blood boil because we've been through this so many times. I'll just read you the lead uh, from the Times. Top federal intelligence agency failed to adequately warn law enforcement officials before the January 6th riot that pro-Trump extremists were threatening violence, including plans to, quote, storm the Capitol, infiltrate its tunnel system, and, quote, bring guns, according to this new report. I'm so sick of this. This goes back to 9-11. You know, bin Laden determined to strike in the U.S. There's always, whenever you have a terrorist attack or a riot or something like that, it always turns out that there's some police agency, law enforcement agency, intel agency, that has substantial warning. And then inevitably, because of bureaucratic F-ups, they don't tell other agencies. So somebody doesn't get the word, the police force on the scene doesn't get the word. In this case, it's the Capitol Police that didn't get these warnings. The FBI knew about it. An FBI, here, listen to this, an FBI memo, January 5th, the day before, warned that people traveling to Washington for, quote, war at the Capitol never made its way to top law enforcement officials. Capitol Police failed to widely circulate information from its intelligence unit that Trump supporters were posting online. It was online. It was, this was done in plain sight, as Amy Klobuchar put it. The failures are obvious. Um, there was one of the officers, she says, quoting him, was heard on the police radio that day asking a simple question. Does anybody have a plan? Sadly, nobody did. And I can't blame the brave Capitol Police officers. They were completely and totally overwhelmed because they were unprepared. And it just reminds me so often, and then there are always these, always these reports and commissions, well, we have 17 recommendations where all of these uh, agencies, federal, state, local, are going to cooperate and share information. And then the next thing comes, and they haven't done it. And people get killed, as happened uh, at the Capitol, as happened in these terror attacks, as happened on 9-11, people get killed. Not that, you know, you could stop every attack, but you could certainly, if you had had, remember in the days after you had, you know, 25,000 National Guardsmen uh, guarding the Capitol, if they had been there, nobody would have gotten in and nobody would have died. But the law enforcement agencies screwed up. This sounds like a good report to me. The Washington Post has a, has a lead more critical of the Capitol Police Force, um, remember the chief had to resign. I think the number two person just resigned. The U.S. Capitol Police had specific intelligence that supporters of President Trump planned to mount an armed invasion of the Capitol at least two weeks before the January 6th riot, according to new findings in a bipartisan Senate report, blah, blah, blah. But a series of omissions and miscommunications kept that information from reaching frontline officers targeted by the violence. So you have two things going on at once. The Capitol Police not being told by the FBI and other federal law enforcement agencies about the scope and the threat and the magnitude of the threat. And the Capitol Police itself had information two weeks before, but didn't bother to tell the officers whose um, lives would be on the line. I don't want to hear about miscommunication. I don't want to hear about snafus. I don't want to hear about a series of omissions. This is your job. 
You have one job. Your job is to protect the Capitol. Uh, now, this is not to blame um, law enforcement entirely or to blame the police entirely. The blame lies with the, you know, 450 people who have since been arrested, some of whom showed up with weapons, some of whom used, you know, flagpoles and fire extinguishers and others to assault police. Uh, it just was a horrible, shameful day. And I say this as somebody who, who works two blocks from the Capitol and has been in that building so many hundreds of times over the years, and it still breaks my heart. And this report is just unacceptable. And you wait, you know, six months from now, a year and a half from now, there'll be another violent episode. I'm not saying at the Capitol, anywhere. Maybe it'll be in Tulsa or Tampa or Tucson. And there'll be a report, well, you know, this agency knew and didn't tell this police force. Problems never seem to get solved. Amazing. Uh, let me digress here before I move on. Uh, I did some of the uh, podcast yesterday on Vice President Kamala Harris on her foreign trip. She was in Guatemala yesterday. So the thing that has gotten the most coverage, uh, she did a press conference with the Guatemalan president, uh, is that she said the following. At the same time, I want folks to be clear in the region who are thinking about making that dangerous trek to the United States-Mexico border. Do not come. Do not come. I believe if you come to our border, you will be turned back. Well, the problem is that many people are not turned back, particularly the unaccompanied minors. Um, she outlined the plan that the U.S. is going to work with Guatemala, and I guess she's meeting with the Mexican leaders today, um, to uh, conduct investigations, looking into corruption. Uh, U.S. will make investments, more opportunities for young families, in primarily indigenous women entrepreneurs. You can tell it's a Democratic administration. Uh, the idea is if uh, things are better at home, uh, there won't be as much of a, a desire by refugees to illegally come to the U.S. But I don't know. I mean, is it really the U.S.'s job to solve all of Guatemala's problems or Mexico's problems? I mean, and some of this is well-intentioned, but it seems to me the scale of the poverty and corruption in these countries is so great that I don't know how much a few grants from Uncle Sam can do. All right, number three... Uh, I touched yesterday on the uh, slowing vaccination rates, which are very troubling. We have about 60 to 61% of those eligible who've gotten at least one dose. I hope those people get the second dose. But a Gallup poll says 60% of U.S. adults report they've been fully vaccinated, 4% partially vaccinated, 12% plan to be vaccinated, and 24% do not plan to be vaccinated. And the interesting thing about this poll is within that 24%, what are the reasons? What do they say? Among the, that group, the vaccine hesitant or resistant, whatever you want to call them. 78% say they're unlikely to reconsider their plans, including 51% who say they're not likely at all to change their minds. That leaves only one in five vaccine-reluctant adults, according to Gallup, who are open to reconsidering. 19% say they're somewhat likely to change their mind. The most common reasons in this poll, waiting to confirm the vaccine is safe, 23%. A belief they won't get seriously ill from the virus, 20%. Not wise. Um, concerns about the timeline for developing the vaccine, 16%. I guess that's a reference to it being rushed out. Mistrust of vaccines in general, 16%. 10% they already have immunity because they've had COVID. 10% cite allergies or concerns about allergies as a reason they don't want to do it. Now, the breakdown here about half of Republicans, 46%, compared with 31% of independents and just 6% of Democrats do not plan to get the COVID-19 vaccine. So I thought we were making some progress here, but if this poll is accurate, um, we may never get over that 
magical home. Obviously, the more people get shots. And what did I just read? Um, oh, in Washington State, you can get marijuana if you get shot. It's called Joints for Jabs. Clever advertising line. I don't know. We have to bribe people with pot to get them to take this life-saving vaccine. Look, whatever uh, works, I guess. You can do beer. You can do uh, weed. All right, number four. There is a lawsuit against Donald Trump, first filed when he was president, by a female journalist whose name is E. Jean Carroll. You may recall that she argued uh, in her lawsuit that back in 1995, you know, well before Donald Trump was in politics, that he uh, forced himself on her sexually in New York, in some kind of department store, near a department store. Uh, Trump has always denied this. She sued. And what happened is the Justice Department under Bill Barr stepped in and said, well, we're, we, DOJ, is going to become the defendant here, and not Donald Trump, because you can't sue a sitting president for anything related to his official duties. But now the Biden Justice Department is backing up the position taken by the Trump Justice Department. Now, it doesn't have anything to do with the Trump's guilt or innocence. Did he actually do what he's alleged to have done by E. Jean Carroll or not? That's not what it's about. It's about the privileges of a president, even though he's now a former president. So, so Merrick Garland's Justice Department said, look, what Trump said about E. Jean Carroll was crude and disrespectful. This has to do with what he said publicly as opposed to the underlying accusation of sexual assault. What he said publicly was, well, I never would have done that because she's not my type. Uh, and he accused her of lying. So now Biden's DOJ says, well, well, it may have been crude, it may have been disrespectful, but the Trump administration was right. And the lawsuit could be thrown out because of this position. Uh, in other words, the argument is, you know, the presidents would get sued personally all the time by all kinds of people who are unhappy with them for whatever reason. And we can't have this because you can't have a function of government. I mean, this is related to the issue that came up with Bill Clinton and Paula Jones when the Supreme Court said, oh, no, you know, it really wouldn't interfere with the president's uh, functioning if uh, Paula Jones's lawsuit were to go forward. The Supreme Court ruled that. And, of course, it resulted in Bill Clinton's impeachment and completely disrupted uh, government, which is not to necessarily take Bill Clinton's side on this, but as a legal matter. So when Barr's Justice Department did this, E. Jean Carroll's lawyers filed a response saying there's not a single person in the United States, not the president and not anyone else, whose job description includes slandering women they sexually assaulted. But now the Biden DOJ elected public officials can and often must address allegations regarding personal wrongdoing that inspire doubt about their suitability for office. Officials do not step outside the bounds of their office simply because they are addressing questions regarding allegations about their personal lives. So Donald Trump probably pleased about that. Okay, moving on to number five. You know, I talked last week about the actress Ellie Kemper from Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt and The Office. She got smeared by a bunch of bad stories. And later there was a second wave of good stories that corrected it. This has to do with Ellie Kemper was 19 years old. She went to this debutante, debutante ball in St. Louis in 1999 called the Veiled Profit Ball. It was at that time. And um, she was smeared with, you know, you know, being part of a KKK type organization. Well, first of all, it had been a segregated outfit, but it had been totally integrated for 20 years by the time this teenager comes along and goes to the ball. It had been written up in the St. Louis paper, it had been written up in the Atlantic many years later. 
She didn't do anything wrong. She didn't do anything wrong whatsoever. There was no KKK connection to this. It was just clickbait that went crazy. But now she's apologized. Yes, it was founded by a former Confederate officer in the late 1800s. How was she responsible for that? She's apologized, and she did not need to apologize. But I guess the climate is such that you just want the controversy to be over. Hi, guys. When I was 19 years old, I decided to participate in a debutante bowl in my hometown. Uh, now, the organization that hosted this had an unquestionably racist, sexist, and elitist past. I was not aware of the history at the time. Yeah, you were 19. But ignorance is no excuse. I was old enough to have educated myself before getting involved. Now, remember... That might have been the history. She posted this on Instagram, but that was not the case in 1999 when she went. That was it was it was ancient history. I unequivocally deplore, denounce, and reject white supremacy. At the same time, I acknowledge that because of my race and my privilege, I am the beneficiary of a system that has dispensed unequal justice and unequal rewards. And she said, "Look, you know, it's a very natural temptation when you become the subject of internet criticism." to tell yourself your detractors are getting it all wrong. But at some point last week, I realized that a lot of the forces behind the criticism are forces that I've spent my life supporting and agreeing with. So there's a lot of virtue signaling with here. I feel bad for Ellie Kemper. She feels like she has to fall on her metaphorical sword, even though she did nothing wrong. This isn't like it was going on at the time and she didn't know about it. It, it was founded by a Confederate guy a century earlier. Why hold her responsible? And she says, oh, you know, they're right. I should have educated myself. So, look, she just wants this to be over. But I don't think she had anything to apologize for. And before we run off here on the podcast, um, looking at, the, you know, it's amazing to me how uh, Meghan and Harry, they just, they make news every single day, at least in the British tabloids, regardless of what they do, regardless of what they do, nothing. Somehow, I mean, it's just the story that they, that the, the Brits can't quit which, of course, means that it gets a lot of uh, attention on this side of the pond. So in London's Express, here's the very serious headline. Meghan Markle and Prince Harry offer major olive branch, but expert warns damage done. Okay, so this has to do with they're just having had a baby. They had a daughter who they named Lilibet Diana. Now, uh, Lilibet uh, somehow relates to Queen Elizabeth's name or what she was called privately. Diana, obviously named for Harry's late mother. Uh, so the story says that the decision to use those names in kind of a bow to the royal family will likely be seen as the couple's first major olive branch offered to the firm, as uh, the Buckingham Palace outfit is known there, since Megxit, according to a royal expert. So you have this, I mean, I'd love to be a royal expert. What a great job you have. You just sit around, reporters call you up and say, well... Seems to me that Meghan shouldn't have done this, or Harry should have said this, and Queen Elizabeth is doing this. Uh, and then that becomes news, you know. Uh, not that we don't have our own experts and political advisors and so forth who make news with the stuff they say. Some of them are called pundits. But anyway, continue with the story. Um, they use the moniker that only people closest to the monarch, including her parents, sister, and Prince Philip, used to call her Lilibet. I don't, I don't know why. This move could be seen as the Duke and Duchess of Sussex's desire to build bridges with the royal family after months of tension. Okay, here comes one of those aforementioned commentators. Over the past year, the Duke and Duchess have made some damaging claims, which widened their rift with the firm. The question really is, are there bridges left to build? 
the damage is done, and it's sadly going to take a lot more from the Sussexes before any healing of the feud can begin. Well, there you have it. I mean, look, imagine a typical family. You know, maybe you're not getting along with the grandparents. You name the kid after the grandparents' nickname. That is a pretty significant gesture. But, you know, nothing would satisfy the British tabloids because tomorrow and the day after and the day after that, they have to have another Harry and Meghan story. Even though they're not really even part of the royal family anymore, living out in California, doing the Netflix thing, the Spotify thing. But I guess there's a market for it uh, or people wouldn't keep writing it and... I guess I just contributed to it by reading it. Hey, we'd love for you to subscribe here on Apple iTunes or on your Amazon device, Google Podcasts, Spotify, FoxNewsPodcast.com, any place where you can just click it and get in your inbox. Thanks for listening. Back tomorrow with more Bug News. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com.